Today, we're mixing it up a bit. Saltivation team member Stacey Roberts and I had the privilege of being guests on the Tax Chats podcast that is hosted by professors Scott Dyring from Duke University and Jeff Hoops at the University of North Carolina. The discussion focused on the $10,000 state and local tax deduction cap and was a blend of academia and business application. We are reproducing the Tax Chats podcast for you here at Saltivation. Please be sure to follow us and Tax Chats on all of your podcast players. This is Tax Chats. Hello, I'm Scott Dyring. And I am Jeff Hoops. And we're here to chat about taxes. Hello again, and welcome to another edition of Tax Chats. I'm Scott Dyring, professor of accounting at Duke University, and I am joined, as always, by the Tax Museum curator and professor of accounting extraordinaire at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, Jeff Hoops. Hello, Jeff. Hello. I heard there was a little construction going on over there that caused you to not be able to enter the tax museum for a few days. It was very sad. We had a whole bunch of people lined up outside wanting to come in. We could not uh, let them in, but they're building a new building, which will include a large new wing for the tax museum. So it'll hopefully all pay off in the end. Okay, very good. Uh, What's going on with tax chats today? So today we have Stacy Roberts and Meredith Smith visiting us. Uh, Stacy and Meredith, you want to introduce yourselves? Hi, I'm Stacy Roberts. I'm a director at Tax Ops in the state and local tax group. Um, more formally, we are Saltivation. Um, and I've been doing this work for longer than I care to uh, tell anybody because then you'll know how old I am. But about 27, 28 years. So I'll let Mayor introduce herself. Hi, I'm Meredith Smith. I'm a senior manager with Tax Ops, a a uh, tax-only firm based in the Denver, Colorado area, and I have been practicing about 18 years, question mark, um, a long time. So I've seen a lot of changes in the state and local tax arena. And you mentioned saltivation. Tell us a little bit about what saltivation is. Sure. So saltivation is just kind of our shtick that we use our brand to kind of bring attention to the various issues, discussions, strategies, people that we talk to about state and local tax. So we do have a podcast as well um, that we, you know, talk with various friends of the firm, attorneys, just people practicing in the state and local tax area. Cool. All right. So you can check out their podcast when you're done listening to Tax Chats and uh, they have a lot of lot of great content over there. And so what we're here to talk about today, it might not surprise you, given the saltivation is the name of their podcast, we're going to be talking about a state and local tax issue, one that I find incredibly interesting, and that is the state and local tax deduction cap, the SALT cap, as they call it. So can you, let's have Stacy. can you just tell us a little bit about the state and local tax cap, the SALT cap? Like, what is it? Yeah, so everybody just strap in because this is a riveting conversation. But um, yeah, so it's the cap of $10,000 that individuals have where they are only allowed a $10,000 deduction for state and local taxes paid on their individual income tax returns for federal purposes. And those, the taxes that are involved are income taxes, property taxes, et cetera. So um, the cap is $10,000 on an annual basis. It used to be unlimited. 
So then when this cap was put in a few years ago with tax reform or a version of tax reform, we've seen other versions of tax reform since, but that version of tax reform, I think in 2017, I believe, um, that cap was put in. And so as a result of that, um, our states have become a little bit more creative on how to help taxpayers get additional taxes deducted and not have to live with that cap. So when you said you said before 2017, before the Tax Collection Jobs Act, where we got the South cap from, it was unlimited. So like you prepare state and local returns. Scott and I don't actually, I guess, other than our own. When you say unlimited, like how big could this deduction be? And then and it goes down to ten thousand. So it's like it used to be people might claim fifteen, and now it goes to ten. Or how high could this number get for some people? Or commonly was it common? Commonly, and then what would be like an extreme? Yeah, you know that's a. I'm not sure that I know a common number for that, right? Because really, where I think taxpayers get caught by this cap are more of the like the pass through entity owners the. Part, the partners and partnerships, the shareholders and S-corps, the members and LLCs, because they're getting they're getting flow-through income, right? And so they might pay tax, state tax, in multiple locations, right, in multiple jurisdictions because of the fact that those entities in which they have an interest are operating in a bunch of different states. And so therefore, those owners have to file and pay tax in a lot of different states. So then on their federal income tax return, they are able to take then those state taxes paid as a deduction. So it really is more something that affects not necessarily maybe me as, you know, like a regular old employee, right? But it really does impact business owners more materially than other people. Well, I think what kind of pre-tax reform, right, when you're preparing your federal return, you got to deduct your real estate taxes. So depending on what state you lived in, value of your home could be X. And there are some states that have really high kind of like real property taxes, um, Illinois, Texas, New York, California, whatever. Not, not um, only real taxes, then, but really high property values. I mean, if you're... Correct. You know, we, ha- we have friends that are professors at Stanford and they, they could quintuple this cap in yeah. property taxes. <laughs> right. Well, and even, you know, and then you have some states that have really high, like just personal income taxes. You know, Minnesota is almost 10%. And so let's say you made $100,000, 10% personal income tax, like right there is your, you know, pre or post-tax reform, your $10,000 cap without any regard to real property taxes. So it did even pre, you know, pre-tax reform affect, or, you know, a lot of people potentially had the opportunity to itemize their deductions and deduct all of their taxes. In the state of Colorado, we are generally a low-income tax state. Our property taxes were relatively low in the grand scheme of things. Me, who doesn't make a ton of money, I do well. I can, you know, afford to feed my family, but I'm even, you know, capped at ten grand, and it's not even, you know, and I'm nothing special from a, you know, taxpayer perspective. And yeah, and I wouldn't even get any of the benefit from you know, this salt workaround because I'm also not a partner in a partnership. Okay. So we're going to, we're going to talk about the workaround in just a second, but so really what you're saying is anybody who lives any place who had state and or local taxes that added up to more than 10,000 in the pre-tax cuts and jobs act, they could have deducted those taxes and reduced their federal tax burden. But now in the post 
TCGA world. If you have more of those taxes than $10,000, too bad. You don't get to deduct them only up to $10,000. And actually, one time, a long time ago, when this first happened, Jeff and I actually went and pulled some data. And like the people that were most likely to suffer from this thing were people who lived in California and in New York and New Jersey, where personal income taxes are high, where property values are high, property taxes are high. Incomes are very high. And incomes are high. And so those people in those states were sort of like, they, they kind of got the short end of the stick. And it was the reason I think that's interesting. And maybe it's another question. Like, it, it sort of feels like this was happening when the Trump Trump administration was running the world. And those states tend to be blue states. And Trump was obviously uh, trying to cater to the red voters. Do you think that there's any like uh, like political motivation to the cap? Or I'm not sure if you've thought about that. I certainly, well, I had kind of thought about that in, you know, trying to keep it productive, you know, a productive, apolitical conversation. Like I had certainly like, it seemed pretty targeted, right? For sure. Now, whether or not Trump was smart enough to specifically pinpoint those pieces from a tax policy, I don't know how much time, you know, former President Trump had spent studying tax policy um but just i guess is the donald kind of the, him, the donald himself did not come up with this on his own right i think some very clever person not only did they implement it in this very clever way but that it expired it's just like always this persistent political bargaining ship that's been pretty, well yeah that's i think why it's interesting and relevant now because if we start thinking about what's going to happen in the future which your clients would probably care about like what's going to happen one year two years five years down the road like one of the things that's currently being batted around in D.C. is what do we do with the salt cap? Right. Yeah. Because my understanding is that there's, you know, a couple different camps with respect to are we going to try to, from a lawmaking perspective, right? Are they going to try to get rid of it? There's like one camp that's trying to get rid of it. And there's another camp, camp that's saying let's let's increase the cap. So it'll be interesting to see how it ultimately plays out. And not to mention that this thing is set to sunset anyway. Well, and as Jeff said, that's that's kind of fascinating too because it creates these strange political bargaining chips that then get used in fascinating ways. Yeah. And I, I think, I mean, from a political standpoint, I think it's interesting. We've talked about there, well, the richer you are, the larger your house, the more state and local taxes you pay, the more this affects you. Um, and yet it's the, Democratic Party that's very, very, very much against the salt cap. The Republicans enact it. And so you have this weird, you know, weird situation in which the Democrats are really out to protect relatively rich people. But generally uh, speaking, when it comes to tax policy, they're trying to do the opposite. The, it's the yeah, opposite. Makes it kind yeah. of fun to think about. It's it's an amazing tension. Yeah. And another part that we haven't mentioned here actually is also very important is this deduction only exists for people if you itemize your tax itemize on your tax return. So that's like 90% of taxpayers don't itemize their tax return. And it's pretty much just like with income. So the 90%, 90% of taxpayers, the lower income people, the 90% lower, so like a lot of people don't itemize at all. This doesn't have any effect. So you're only starting with like the 10% richest people. And then from there, only the people that like exceed that $10,000. So yeah, you talked about these workarounds. What, what are... What's happening with the workarounds? This is something like I've heard a little bit about, but don't actually fully understand. And I feel like I'd need to sit down and actually prepare a tax return to really understand Jeff's, how this Jeff's works. Jeff's asking for a friend. He wants to know what the Just workaround is so that he can, uh, 
you know, help his friend avoid his state and local salt cap? Yeah. So basically the workaround is a business that operates as a pastor entity, right? Who it's generally in and of itself is not a taxable entity that the activity flows through to your owners. They are allowed to kind of pay tax on behalf of their shareholders, deduct that as kind of above the line deduction to offset the ordinary income activity. And then in essence, that deduction goes into your computation of ordinary income that then flows through to the owners. So it's a deduction for the business on behalf of its shareholders that the shareholders will then kind of get to take in because they would be report, you know, that income would be reported on a Schedule K-1 that goes on to that partner's individual tax return. So so what would have been state and local tax expense to me personally ends up being state and local tax expense to my partnership. And then the partnership reports to me, the, the, the partner, lower income than I otherwise would have had. Correct. So you're starting with a lower number. Yeah. And so the state, so you know, what, what's a state that has done this? I don't even know which states are in on this. On this a lot of them now, um, I think, like right? 30, 32 of them. There are many that have over time uh, put in what we call a PTE tax election and or there's a couple states that are, it's mandatory. What does, what's a PTE? What does PTE stand for? Pass through entity. And so that just, and so the PTE election just allows you to deduct as a business expense what was actually a personal expense, essentially? That's more or less a personal tax. So I think when New Jersey was one of the first states, I think that came out with this, some of the East Coast states, Stacey and I were kind of, it's it's kind of this like non-resident withholding and a composite tax had a baby, right? So for those who are unfamiliar with how you know, state taxes work from a pass-through perspective. Most and most states require um, kind of a prepayment on your non-residents to for withholding to kind of guarantee that there will be money. You know that they're going to get some money attributed or tax attributed to that earnings of that business. You know, because when you give a K one, you're up to you know the mercy of the re- of you know the person receiving that K one to actually file a return. So a lot of states will require withholding for their non-residents um, on behalf of that activity. There's also some states will that will allow a composite return. So basically, the business will pay tax on behalf of the shareholder, and that stops the requirement for that shareholder to file an income tax return. So it's kind of this marrying of a composite tax that pays tax on behalf of its shareholder, treated as a distribution though, and kind of reduces basis and all of that. But the partner and the partnership still does have to file a return in that as a non-resident. So it's just this kind of weird mixture of taking a bunch of concepts, putting it in a, you know, a shaker and pouring a cocktail that no one knows how to, you know, drink. So this still work for completely non-residents, right? for, for just a domestic. So like, let's, I mean, I think it would be useful to go through an example. And we have... Not, not domestic as in form, but it's, it's state uh, State here. resident, yeah. I think it would be useful to go through an example. And we have amongst us uh, extremely 
successful business owner, Scott Dyering. He owns <laughs> a ranch, a blackberry ranch, on which he is a rancher, and he true. harvests blackberries. Let's assume he actually harvest a lot of blackberries. And, I, and actually was able to sell them and actually make money, which were yeah, all things None of these are things are true. Very yet, large one assumptions. Day, one day it will be. Yeah. So let's say he, like in 2016, had $20,000 of state and local tax that he paid. Well, hold on. Paid personally. Let's say he pays it personally. So how is he going to use his flow-through entity, Blackberry Ranch, as literally called Blackberry Ranch, uh, how is that going to help him be able to deduct all $20,000 of that state and local tax instead of just $10,000. If he made $20,000 across multiple states, right? Or paid, sorry, paid $20,000, I should say, across multiple states. Well, let's say right? I just paid it in. Let's say I just paid 20000 to North Carolina to keep it simple. Okay. Yeah. All right. So a North Carolina resident. Yeah. Okay. So your entity, whether it's an S-Corp, we'll, we'll call it an S-Corp. Okay. It's actually an LLC, but uh, S Corp is fine. Okay, well, single member LLC. Single, well, or? yeah, single member LLC. Yeah, see, yeah. We, single member <laughs> LLC. A little bit more dicey when. <laughs> let's work we'll S Corp. Okay, let's go with S Corp. Let's make we'll it. We'll say easy. the LLC made an S Corp election. Okay, perfect. So perfect. Single member S Corp. Issuing K ones. Okay. Right. Because there's all we could go down a whole other rabbit hole when it comes to single member LLCs and all of that. So anyway, so your S Corp then. Would, would deduct the $20,000 of tax as a business expense. And then your K-1 would show the income less that $20,000 and any other business expenses, right? That would be your basically ordinary income that would be reported on your K-1. And then you would claim that ordinary income on your personal income tax return. Yeah. So that $20,000 is already going to be taken out. But so can I, can my amazing Blackberry farm uh, pay my like personal property taxes for me on my home and claim that as a legit uh, expense? Because that seems kind of sketchy. Well, that is a little sketchy. <laughs> but <laughs> when we're talking about $20,000, we're really talking about income taxes, right? For purposes of this example. Okay. Okay. So income taxes. Okay. Oh, so hold on. I didn't, I didn't realize that. So this, these workarounds are just state income taxes. Property not, taxes not are property still tax. Okay. So we got to redo our whole thing here. Okay. So now let's say that... This is 20000 income taxes. Yeah. Okay. But so, but I still have a question. So I get my fat salary from Duke University. Okay. And I have to pay state income taxes because in North Carolina, the state tax is like 5%. Okay. Let's just pretend my amazing salary was high enough that I paid $20,000 in income taxes to the state of North Carolina from my Duke salary. Could I use my LLC to fix that problem or am I still sort of stuck because that's income from Duke, not from like my Blackberry farm? Right. That you'd be stuck. I'm still right? stuck. Because okay. And those are, and th that would be like withholding taxes and things like that. Right. So like that's, that's a little different, right. Cause those are employment taxes, right. Well, no, Whereas, I mean, I'm talking about the, I'm not talking about the state. I'm not, I'm talking about the state income tax on my salary, just 5%. I gotcha. Yes. No, exactly. That, and, but that's, they do withhold it, but I mean, I'm still, uh, yeah, you're yeah. getting withholding. Yeah. Right. But yeah, that's personal. Yeah. So you wouldn't be able to shift that to the business. So I'm sort of stuck there. So really what I can do is what I am going to be able to do is solve this problem if I have income that's coming from a business. And I mean, to just kind of backtrack a little bit on like the property piece of it. I mean, it's possible, you know, it's possible that, you know, your, your Blackberry farm, right? I mean, there's going to be 
property taxes that are paid. But again, you're deducting those as business expenses. So they would be technically deducted at the business level. So kind of in the example of, let's say you had uh, your Blackberry farm made $100,000. We just need to clarify, this is a ranch. He ranches blackberries. He does not farm blackberries. <laughs> it's a farm, but I want to call it a ranch. And my wife's been mocking me because she says ranches have cows, not blackberries, but whatever. All right. So oh, there's plenty of ranches in Colorado with no cows. Yeah, see, there I told you, <laughs> Jeff. Pot, I told pot you. ranchers, pot ranchers there in Colorado. <laughs> well, right. Yeah, there's that okay. too. Yes. Soon there'll also be mushrooms and other yes, exactly. but that's right. that's another episode. Perfect. Right. Okay. So your blackberry business has a hundred thousand dollars of ordinary income. Pre-tax reform, that entire hundred thousand dollars would go to you and it would increase your North Carolina earnings and you would pay tax in North Carolina. So with this pass-through entity deduction, you could say, okay, I have, you know, the income attributable to this, you know, these earnings would would be $20,000 worth of tax. So now the BlackBerry business can deduct that $20,000. So instead of a net income of $100,000, you've got a net income of eighty. And so now you're effectively getting a 20, let's say your effective federal tax rate is 20%, right? You're basically saving 20% taxes on the $20,000 kind of state deduction. It's kind of like letting the business pay the tax at the state level, not having it flow through, and then only flowing through the after-tax amount. Whereas in the pre-world, I was like flowing through the whole amount and being forced to pay it, claim it as like an individual thing. And so it sort of converted it from an individual tax to a business tax. Okay, so now all I need to do is actually make money on my BlackBerry farm so that I can uh, take advantage of this. Ranch, ranch, Scott, ranch. My, My BlackBerry ranch, my BlackBerry ranch. Well, and, and actually, this is kind of interesting because I do actually have uh, a membership in an LLC in Wyoming that um, that does make money. But Wyoming, it happens to be the case, is like a zero tax state. <laughs> so it's not really much of an issue in Wyoming. So, yeah. And so you mentioned that like New Jersey was an innovative, like one of the first states that passed this cap. Or sorry, not the cap, the workaround. And there's like 32 other states. Is there some pattern to the states that are passing the workaround? Are they all... Like, is it only blue states that are passing the workaround? Is it all states? Is it any pattern? I don't think that we've seen really a pattern. I would say that, you know, Meredith mentioned earlier, like New Jersey was an early adopter. So, you know, we are seeing maybe that our more in California came out with one, maybe not so early as others. But so we are seeing, I think, our higher tax states, um, Maybe they jumped on board a little earlier than others. Um, I would say that majority that we've seen recently have been in maybe the last year or so. They're, you know, the states are a little slow to adopt, right? So some are more on top of it than others. But um, I would say the bulk of the 32 or so that we've got right now, they came on board in the last year with these, with these elections. So does this cost states anything? Well, I mean, yeah, I would think it does. I mean, statistically, I've not seen numbers around it, um, but I would think it would. And then we have seen that it's not so easy 
because there's this thing called a credit for taxes paid mechanism. And so if you've got a pass-through entity that is operating in multiple states, and then you've got a resident shareholder. So Scott, you're a resident of North Carolina. If your um, farm, ranch, we're operating in multiple states, you start selling into multiple states, right? Then you would have a duty to file and the S Corp would have a duty to file in multiple states. And then because you'd be paying tax in multiple jurisdictions, you as the owner would be able to take a credit for taxes paid in multiple jurisdictions. Now those credits for taxes paid sound great. I mean, the whole point about those is to really avoid double taxation, right? Because as a business owner, you technically should be paying tax on all these jurisdictions in which your entity's operating, but then you also pay 100% in your resident state. So on the surface, it sounds like you're going to get double taxed. So the credit for taxes paid mechanism is supposed to um, even that out so that you're not getting double taxed, but for the fact that it is not necessarily dollar for dollar, Um and so you can get whipsawed. And then there's certain states that say, hey, you might have paid, you know, or made this election, but we're not going to allow you a credit for taxes paid based upon how our state views that pass-through entity tax. So you can have a situation where you are double taxed. Yeah. Yeah, that's really that's that's pretty crazy. Because anyway, I, I can see how it could get really really complicated really quickly, and I can see why it, I might be really uh, interested in calling tax ops real quickly to uh, help me out here. Because as soon as my BlackBerry farm starts selling blackberries in Georgia and South Carolina, like I'm calling tax ops because like multiple states is going to get real complicated. And the other thing I'm going to do is I'm going to get an, a couple more members in my LLC because it sounds like a single member LLC is going to complicate things. And I'm guessing that's because it's sort of just treated like a sole proprietorship or something. And so I don't really get the same... The same is that, am, I, am, I, am I thinking about it correctly? Indeed you are. Well, you're, I mean, your Schedule C does still get deductions, but it's, yeah. once you have to file in multiple states, I guess. Yeah. So, all right. So, so as I expand, I'm going to get partners and then my life is going to be like way better. Um, or and more complicated, but um, but uh, tax ops and saltivation is going to be uh, they'll have a new client, so that's good. Um, well, maybe Jeff will you know use his proceeds from the tax museum yes. to you know kick in and be an owner in your BlackBerry operations. Yes, exactly. All right. So um, okay. So now here's the thing. I can imagine like everybody who has a small like a flow through entity that can is probably very interested in doing this because most people are not interested in paying more tax than they need to pay. So um, if I'm a business owner and I'm, I'm doing this, I'm probably wondering what are the chances something changes in the future or some treasury regulation comes out or some court case is settled that makes it so that all of my supposed benefits don't work or they're not going to work in the future. Is there any chance that that something like that could happen like in the future? Absolutely. Any, There's any always a chance, but I mean, how big are the chances? Right. Well, I mean, again, our states are really slow to react, right? So the federal government does something. Our states are really slow to then put something in place, right? So they're constantly playing catch up. But to the extent that something does change federally, then we would know. And then we would just have to wait and see what the states did in, re in you know, reaction to it. Yep. 
But so far, the, the federal government's kind of like, hasn't the federal government kind of like condoned this and said, yeah, this is okay, what the states are doing? Isn't that what we know so far? So far, yes. Yes. It's, you know, and it, it they, I don't want to say support, that's probably not the right word, but yeah, they don't, they're not fighting it because the states are allowed to do it. And that was true under the, the Trump administration and the Biden administration? Yes. What's kind of amazing about that is, so so when we were talking a little bit earlier about, does this cost anything to states? I mean, there could be some political costs or something, but like from a tax point of view, um, the state's going to get the tax that it's owed one way or another, unless people are just avoiding the law. So in this case, the state collects the revenue either um, in a way that the individual doesn't get to deduct at the federal level or in a way that they do get to deduct at the federal level, but the state still gets the revenue. Who who doesn't get the revenue is the federal government because the federal government's either giving you a deduction or they're not. If they do give you a deduction, then you end up with like lower federal tax liability. And and so what what's really happening here is the federal government is subsidizing the state tax collections in these uh, high tax states. And if then the state uh, this gets taken away by a salt cap, then the state can get back those deductions by allowing these um, workarounds, which is kind of an amazing thing to think about. And then it's even more amazing to think that the, the, the Treasury Department comes out with some guidance or regulation that says, yeah, it's fine. We'll give you, we'll give you the benefit. And it's, it's pretty interesting uh, political game. Yeah, I mean, I think they have bigger fish to fry, to be honest. So I think, you know, their focus is elsewhere at least for now. Yeah. Not to say that it might not switch, right? Or shift. Well, I mean, I'm sure the salt uh, people who are paying this and are just hoping that this just flies under the radar forever because it's just will help them like have these, you know, keep going on. And while they're frying their international tax provisions and whatever, then the state and local people can just be over here doing their thing. So yeah, pretty, pretty interesting to think about. Well, but it's also a math exercise, right, where you have to really see, are you really like making these elections at a state level, particularly like your mix of state? Like if you're a resident of California, you have operations in you know, multiple other states. Does it really make sense to make the election? Does it make sense to make the election in your resident state? Maybe you're paying a higher rate. Does it make sense to make the election in the non-resident states? You really have to run the numbers to see whether it even makes sense because at the end of the day, you're trying to get a federal benefit. And so it may not ultimately be worth it to make. Yeah, and, but, and I guess this is another thing to point out. The federal benefit, it's, it's really a benefit that's coming at whatever your personal tax rate would be, right? So if I'm a high tax paying individual, that my rate might be like something in the low 30% or something. And but these and that's, are, these that's are flow a, your individual rate is yeah, by definition the same rate. as the, is the same as the business rate. Well, but yeah, but see the businesses don't have a rate. So it's not like the corporate rate where it's you a, get 21%. It's a, but it's a, that's what I'm saying. They're the same rate. It's the flow through rate. It's the, it's the personal tax rate, right? And the corp, it's not, and the reason I'm pointing that out is that deduction is going to be a lot bigger than if, for example, it was the corporate tax rate at only 21%, like much, much lower, right? So you're getting, you're getting a savings of 30 cents on the dollar of deduction or something like that. Well, right. So let's say, you know, let's say I decide to buy into Scott's, you know, BlackBerry operations. So we're going to be 50, big, 50 partners. That's a big mistake. It's a money losing proposition, <laughs> but in see any this case, thing. Yeah. all right. So, so 50, 50 part, actually it's got to be 51, 49, but in any case, 51, 49. Fair. Right. But he also has this 
inflated, per, not inflated, sorry. He makes more money as a professor than I do as a tax. It's inflated, but that's okay. Yeah. We'll, we'll take your point. <laughs> I think those were your words, not mine. <laughs> right. So if let's say his effective federal rate is 30%, yep. but mine is 18%, mm. but we're going to get that same deduction, yep. but Scott's going to get a bigger benefit of that because his effective tax rate is higher than mine. Yep. Yeah, that's and also oh, so, so, okay. So that's a whole another dimension here because the partners could be like arguing over this because it's like, well, my rate's only fifteen percent and yours is thirty one percent or something. But aren't they all made unambiguously better off by doing it? I saw like the rich, the higher income tax bracket person is going to be benefit, but there's nothing they could change that would change that. Well, it depends on the activity of you as an individual outside of your operations of a business. So all things being equal, yes, but again, right you know, Scott and I make a different amount of money. So the benefit could be different. Yeah. At the margin, the benefit's different. And then I guess the question is just how costly is it to do this election? Because you want to compare the benefit that you're going to get by the cost that you have to incur to make it all happen. Well, and it's, there's a lot of nuances to that too, right? Because it's, I mean, it's a year over year election. So oftentimes for state tax purposes, you make an election one year and you're bound to it for, you know, a finite period of time or indefinitely until you can prove that you aren't, you don't want it anymore, which is very difficult, but it's a year over year election. So your activities can change, but also some States could say, Hey, it's, it's an all or nothing. So it has to be every partner. It can only be some partners. And there's some combination therein where there could be some disagreements between the partners of whether or not we're going to do this thing. I see. So that's, that's interesting too, that it's, all the partners are none, but but that's kind of amazing that you can like change your election every year, right? That's uh, pretty. That's kind of actually quite advantageous for the taxpayer, I think. Yeah, it can be. What's difficult though, too, is oftentimes I think in California, Stacey, and call my bluff if I'm if I'm misstating anything, right? In order to make the election, you have to kind of make an estimated tax payment by a certain amount of time in the year for which you want to make an election, right? So. If I want to make a California PTET election for my 2023 taxes, which usually isn't going to, you know, I'm going to file an extension in April, I have to make that election on like June 15th of the current year. So I have no idea what is going to show up in my tax on my tax return that's going to be filed in another year, but I got to make that decision now. And then there's some nuances too with the business of are you a cash basis? Are you an accrual basis taxpayer? So with year can you actually make this election or actually take the deduction rather not make the election yeah that's so you really you have to be you have to be able to forecast what your you know kind of tax liability is yeah. going to be and yeah and then once you make the election you're stuck with it for the, for year. the year but at least it's, you know most most of them are year by year yeah yeah so you're not necessarily bound for several years in a row yeah Okay, so so Jeff and I, who are not salt experts, what have we missed in the salt world and this workaround that we should have asked you about that we didn't ask you about? Or did we cover like the most important aspects? Um, I just had something recently come up where we had a client who has had two owners, individual owners, and then they ultimately were acquired. Well, a, a majority interest then was acquired by a PE firm. And they had made a PTET election in Colorado. And so the question was, 
what happens now with this? Because there was an entity basically inserted. So we had like a reorg, an entity inserted. The PTET election is really not with the original entity anymore, right? Or shouldn't be. And so I actually, and the state of Colorado is not as good maybe as other states with publishing information. And again, it kind of goes back to the fact that they don't, these things get legislated and then the Department of Revenue, you know, departments have to wrestle with it, how to administer it, right? And I was hoping I could just maybe write a letter to the Department of Revenue to say, hey, we have this reorg. We now want the election to be with this entity, transfer the monies. Because again, the estimated payment had been made, then reorg happens four months later. Well, I got I, I did speak to somebody at the department. They didn't even know what we should do with it. Because they're not equipped to deal with it. Yeah. So there's lots of uncertainty if anything unusual happens. Yeah. yeah. So just from an administration perspective, the departments don't necessarily know what to do. And so do they just make something up on the fly? Do you just not do anything and you wait? What well, like we what do you actually functionally do? Up on the fly? <laughs> <laughs> Again, I'm, we're going to file the return, or we filed the return, because it was due 10-15. Then, you know, we're basically asking for forgiveness after the fact. Like, you all have our money. Like, Make sure sorry, you put it here You now. have our money. Put it on this other account. So wow. You file, let's the, file the return for that other account as if they did that. Yeah. I mean, we'll... we'll We'll see if they actually do that for us. They, they probably are not going to even know what we're talking about. Well, it's very interesting and it's fun to think about. This is going to be, this will be a fun, fun thing to bring up in my tax class with the MBA students this year when they start complaining about the salt cap. I'll be like, ah, but there's a workaround and here we go. Let's talk about how this works and uh, it'll be fun to think about. One, it's just like one small slice of tax reform that really kind of like screwed up the state treatments. There's just, they did a lot that the states were like, nah, I'm good. Like interest. No, we're going to ignore that. 174, the R&D stuff. Yeah, we're going to we're going to ignore that too. One more thing that makes our lives interesting is state and local tax practitioners. Yes, exactly. Or the NOL utilization. Yeah, there's another one. We there's a lot of tax reform thing to spend a lot of time talking about. Yeah. Well, Stacy, Meredith, thank you so much for joining us. It's been really fun to get your insights and to chat about state and local taxes. Yeah, thank you so much for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us, guys. All right. Well, I'm uh, I'm Scott Dyring. This has been another edition of Tax Chats. I'm joined by Jeff Hoops, my colleague at the University of North Carolina. And our guests today have been Stacey Roberts and Meredith Smith with Tax Ops. And you can check out their own podcast, Saltivation. Um, and just by way of reminder, you can get CPE uh, credit for listening to Tax Chats. To do so, you can go to earmarkcpe.com download the free app, then go to the Tax Chats channel, register for the course, take a short quiz, and earn your CPE certificate. Thank you so much for joining us. We'll chat with you next time. Goodbye. Bye. This podcast is for educational purposes only and is not intended, nor should it be relied upon as legal, tax, accounting, or investment advice. You should consult with a competent professional to discuss specifics of your situation and the applicability of the information presented.